You're listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes, where you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who lived them. Raw, real, and 100% unapologetic. And now, here is your host, Eric Rogel. Hey, this is Eric Rogel, and thanks for joining us on Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes. This is where each week you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who live them. And today I'm excited for you to hear my guest story because it's one that's incredibly inspiring. It's one that that has truly inspired me. It's one that has shown me what the true meaning of being a warrior is. Because if you've ever had a fear, a real fear about facing something in your life, that you thought would be insurmountable, something so devastating, so crushing, that you believe you could never come back from it or never get past it, then you're going to want to listen to my guest Noah Courier today because he's going to tell you how he did just that. Noah is the founder of an organization that I'm a big, big fan of. It's called Oscar Mike. Now, you can find them at oscarmike.org. And uh, guys, I urge you to go there because... Oscar Mike's mission is to get paralyzed military veterans into adaptive sports, to get them back on the move, which is what Oscar Mike stands for. Uh, And you can support them by buying their t-shirts and gear. Now, I myself, I have about five or six of these shirts. I have a hat. They're all made in the U.S. And what I love about it is not only are they great designs, incredible patriotic designs, but they're also uh, 100% of the proceeds go directly to their cause. And it's an incredible mission. And it's something that as, uh, as you're going to hear, it gives Noah an incredible sense of purpose, but Oscar Mike wasn't his original purpose. See, growing up in a small Midwestern town where he spent a lot of time outdoors and excelled in sports, Noah had dreamed of being a Marine since he was a kid. And shortly after joining the Marines in 2000, Noah was among the first soldiers deployed to Afghanistan after the towers fell on September 11th, 2001. Now, Noah was doing what he loved, and he believed he was truly living his purpose. But then in 2003, Noah returned home to Camp Pendleton following a deployment to Iraq. The driver of the truck Noah was riding in fell asleep at the wheel And in the resulting accident, Noah suffered multiple injuries, including the one that left him paralyzed from the chest down. And as you're going to hear in a minute, Noah battled more than six years to find his way back from this and from another devastating tragedy. I asked Noah about his childhood growing up in the Midwest and how it helped him when he was starting Oscar Mike. I like recruiting my friends to help me with everything. So, uh... You know, later in life, I think that that, or at least in high school, that translated into, uh, you know, whether it was work or um, parties or pizza nights for the football team or, you know, whatever it was. I just liked organizing groups of people and having a good time with them. And, um, but growing up, small town, uh, surrounded by cornfields. Um, and I lived on a, a little lake that's uh, about five miles around. Um, I spent my early mornings either like catching turtles and frogs and, you know, that kind of stuff. And then 
uh, once the sun was fully up, we usually gathered in a group somewhere, you know, whether it was a, a field or a basketball court and played some sort of sport for a while. Uh, and then switch the sport later in the day. But bike riding was always a, uh, a real big uh, hobby of mine and uh, sports that I like to play all, all around uh, bike riding. But team sports, too. I played all the school sports. Noah's childhood and his sense of creating new adventures with friends had a big influence on who he became as an adult. So I asked him if there was a male influence in his life, a mentor who had helped guide him. Uh, well, definitely my dad. Um, he's also a Marine Corps veteran. Um, and, uh, you know, I always wanted to be like him. He adopted me when I was about five years old. Um, and just a, a great mentor in, in the sense that, you know, I could just sit back and watch how hard he worked all the time. Um, and, you know, he, he also takes the most direct route to solve problems you know, if there is a, a bee that lands on the table at the picnic, he will just smash it immediately with his hand, even though he's going to get stung because he doesn't care. It's just the quickest uh, solution to the problem and always sacrificing himself or, you know, his body to, to make sure that the job gets done fast. And, uh, you know, he, he taught me young. I, I had to uh, cut wood and restack the wood pile a million times. And that was always my punishment for if I did something wrong. Oh, really? Uh, oh, so you had to like cut it and restack over and over? Oh, all the time. I mean, that was, that was the thing. But I also found out a little bit later in life, that was always his punishment too. So, you know, he was just re recycling that one. <laughs> right. He was passing it on down. Yep. He knew oh, yeah. how effective it was because of what, you know, what it did for him. So he passed I just passed a, uh, this beautifully stacked wood pile the other day on the way to the airport and it was enormous and i was just like that kid has a rough life <laughs> somebody <laughs> screwed up somewhere yeah yeah oh yeah he got in a lot of trouble to make it look like that <laughs> now you said your dad worked hard but i mean was it um was it hard work or was it struggle because there's a difference i mean there, there's you know you did you learn like the I want to say the benefits of hard work of working hard and being able to reap the rewards or was it more of like struggling and you had to you know slog through everything i think you know from a very early age growing up in uh, uh trailer parks and then moving into apartments and then moving into townhouses and then moving into uh, a home eventually you know watching the the dividends pay off of all the hard work and him constantly, you know, trying to achieve the next level for the family until we got to a comfortable spot where we um, eventually landed in, in Poplar Grove, Illinois, you know. Um, but yeah, it started with struggle and um, eventually I think became more comfortable. And he, he always moved up really quickly in the, the jobs that he had, and you know, the positions and the ranks um, until he, he was running the show. It takes a true man of courage and integrity to raise another man's son and to raise him to be a good man. I asked Noah about his biological father and if he had any influence in Noah's life. Well, my mom was a single mom. Um, uh, bad story, you know, with the, the guy that was my, I guess, biological father. I've never really called him that. Never. Um, I crazy story later in life, a lot later, this was 
maybe a half a dozen years ago or so, um, I finally just looked them up. And when I did, um, there was a, a very recent um, obituary of him. So by the time I even looked up my biological father, he had already passed um, and very recently. And then, um, you know, the, the adoption story, my, my mom met my dad and uh, I, I think, uh, you know, I got to go over to his apartment at some point and, and he just like played with me. I was five years old and I remember I got so excited about everything that I threw up and, um, <laughs> You know, it was just, it was the first guy, I guess, in my mom's life that I really, really liked. And um, he uh, made me feel comfortable. I got to to meet one of his nephews right away, and uh, my, who's my cousin Eric. And um, he took us to a Cubs game, and I got real tight with uh, my cousins um, real quick. And then when, when they got married, uh, he immediately chose to adopt me instead of, you know, just playing that backseat role. He, he became the, the driver. That's beautiful. So in, in other words, he, he really, well, first of all, mom turned things around, right? You said mom was in a bad situation. She actually met a great guy who turned out to be a really good man. Yeah. And then yeah, took, she, was, she was doing everything on her own before him. Yeah. And he comes in and, and right away he, you know, becomes a, a mentor and a father figure and a role model to you. And that's, listen, I've, I've been in that situation. I had a stepdaughter who was 16 months old when her mother and I met. And this little girl stole my heart, man. It just was beautiful. And I was with her mom until she was nine or so, eight or nine. And um, I know that feeling. And so it's just, but I think it's amazing that, that he stepped in and did that and that he, you know, chose to adopt you, make it, make it, you know, we could say official. I mean, it was official at that point anyway, but really wanted to do that and be your father. Yeah. Throughout my entire life. I mean, the, the list of things that he never had to do, but did them is extraordinarily long, extraordinarily long. Give me an example of a couple of more. Well, I mean, even today, you know, I got to, I finally got to hire him here at Oscar Mike about, uh, it's probably it's close to two years now that he's been working here. And, um, you know, this was, I basically snatched him, uh, immediately out of retirement. Uh, the second he thought he was going to retire, I, I pulled him over here. He's got a long history of being a CFO and a COO at different companies. Um, so I, I basically said, we got to make this happen. And then I think that there was nothing more that he, he wanted, but you know, he, he shows up in the morning um, to my place and helps me get ready. Um, not because he has to, I could do it on my own, but he speeds up the process for me a little bit every day. And, um, and then we come into work together and work all day. And then he usually goes home and does what I do and continues working. Um, you know, he just, but that's just one example of, you know, he doesn't have to be doing this and he chooses to, and he's been by my side since I was five years old. It sounds like he's coming from the heart. Everything he's doing for you is like directly right from here, right from his heart. Yeah. Uh, the love we have for each other is uh, extremely deep and strong. So is he the reason you decided to become a Marine? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he never really talked about the Marine Corps, um, but I got real into the movie Full Metal Jacket. And, um, you know, he told me that that was a, 
a very accurate depiction, uh, especially of boot camp. And then, um, you know, I, I think when I was like in junior high, I started in school projects. I, I started incorporating, um, you know, the Marine Corps um, and then writing papers about it and um, papers about the Vietnam War and, um, you know, from the, the Marine or the soldier's perspective. And uh, those were the things that fascinated me. Um, what about then, fascinated you? Like, what about Full Metal Jacket really made it, you know, your favorite movie? What, what about the military, the Marines specifically, was so fascinating to you? What drew you to it? I think the, you know, if you, if you think of the four branches of the service and you think about which one is going to give you the biggest struggle, um, the Marine Corps is probably it. And, you know, I wanted to be able to, to pass that test. Um, and then, you know, every, every war movie that depicts Marines, the, the brotherhood, the surviving the suck together, um, you know, crawling through the mud and digging holes and trenches, you know, like I, I wanted to experience that. I wanted to um, see if I could pass the ultimate test, you know, and then my dad said something to me when I told him um, I was joining the delayed entry program uh, basically a year prior to, to leaving. Um, and I said, Hey dad, I'm joining the Marine Corps. And I said, but since I'm only 17, I need you guys to, to sign for me. And he said, don't join the Marine Corps. He, he said, oh, really? Yeah. He, he said, join, if you have to join the military, pick the air force or, or the Navy or the Coast Guard or something. And um, what I, was his I reasoning? what was his reasoning? I, you know, honestly, I think he, it's one of those uh, where if you tell somebody not to do it, but they still do it anyway, they were meant to do it. Um, you know, so it was just that last, that final test, you know, hearing your dad say, don't do it, join one of these other ones, you know, uh, it'll be easier to get a job when you get out. It won't be as hard on you, you know, these kind of things. And then, um, so he was testing. Anyway. He was wanting to see if you were really committed to being a Marine. I think so. And, uh, I didn't realize that at the time. I think that, that's something I thought about later on, but, um, you know, he, he was so proud that I joined the Marine Corps and, uh, sure that he wanted, he went all along. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Tell me about your experience in the Marine. Once you're there, now, I mean, well, like, you've been dreaming about this since you're a kid, right? This is your yeah. ultimate. What you wanted to do. Your dad is Marine. Your movies are about Marines. You're looking at it in school, and now you're finally there. Yeah. So tell me about that. Yeah, I did uh, a lot of prep work um, leading up to to joining, and I joined in the year 2000, or that's when I left for boot camp. But before that, you know, I I um gotten to the point where I could take apart an M16 blindfolded and putting it back together. I was extremely physically fit. Um, you know, I played every sport our school offered. Um and, you know, could in my opinion at least um outdo anybody in any sort of physical competition. Um so I, I was ready for it. What I wasn't ready for or expecting when I got there um is really the um, the mental uh, hardships that you go through and, you know, their, their process of kind of breaking you down uh, before they start building you back up and treating you like a, a kid in the beginning, you know, or at least that's how we felt. 
uh, before they start building you back up and you know by the time you graduate then getting the eagle glove and anchor put in your hand um you know but i think there a lot of it i could expect a lot of it i had already learned the things that i didn't expect and that you couldn't learn going in um were were still a huge challenge to me um and i fell in love with it i think i considered myself and other people might have considered me to uh a better field marine than a garrison marine um you know i didn't i didn't particularly enjoy um having the most polished boots and the uh you know the best creases um in my camis but i love being in the field and i love the hard work and i love the suck yeah it sounds like challenge has been a big um kind of theme for you right going into this yeah um the challenge of getting there, enjoying the chain, you know, getting prepared. I'm going to back up. What I'm feeling is, you know, you getting prepared to go into the Marines physically, but then experiencing the mental challenges that they put you through, which is what you didn't expect. And rather than be like, shit, this really sucks. I did not know this was coming. What you're saying is that presented a new challenge and you really wanted to step up and rise to that one. Yeah, I, I would be lying if I said I enjoyed all that, though, in the beginning. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. Fair boot enough. Camp boot camp, I mean, I, I think every, every Marine that's ever been through it says the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true, true. So now, um, so you make it through boot camp, obviously, and, and you uh, were over in Afghanistan, correct? Right after the towers fell. You know, we didn't do anything in Afghanistan. We were on a deployment um, right after September 11th, but... Um, we called it Operation Enduring Boredom um, because we we really just sat on a ship for seven and a half months. We yeah. offloaded uh, some equipment into Pakistan, uh, you know, and did real small things, uh, gearing up, I think, for the war. But my unit never got to take part in any of the, you know, the initial combat in Afghanistan. So um, I, I feel like uh, a lot of us felt like we got cheated there because we were... Uh, we were ready and September 11th was so fresh in our minds um, in our hearts and you know uh, we wanted to to be a part of um, I guess you know we just wanted to experience um, doing something or feeling a little bit more meaningful um, and exacting some of that revenge that everybody wanted um, so badly at the time yeah the big a, big, a deep sense of duty is what I'm feeling around that yeah, you know, and then I get guys all the time because I because of my combat experience in Iraq and, and being a part of the invasion after that first deployment, I hear people say all the time, like, um, you know, yeah, I was a Marine or I was in the Army, but um, I never got to go to combat. And the way that they say it is the way I felt, um, you know, after that first deployment, not getting to experience it. But now that I have, I always say, you know, something along, along the lines of don't worry, getting shot at, it's overrated, um, or, um, you know, something like that, because <laughs> service is service. And the only reason that I was positioned where I was, um, you know, was basically um, how the cards, you know, laid out, but I could have easily been in a unit that um, didn't um, go to the invasion, or uh, maybe wasn't there until the third or fourth round. You know, it's just, it was the luck of the draw, basically. 
So tell me about Iraq. This was what, a second deployment? Yeah, Iraq was my second deployment. Um, I think we got to Kuwait uh, by boat, uh, another long deployment on a Navy ship. Um, I think we got there in something like, like January maybe of 2003. Um, and then the war started uh, March 19th, 2003. We got the, the big speech from General Mattis. We got the, uh, the movement order, how everything was going to play out. And that's when we found out first LAR was going to be uh, you know, what we're called the tip of the spear for the invasion of Iraq, which was a little bit backwards because typically first recon would go first and then we'd probably be behind them. But I think because of our, uh, how fast the vehicles were and uh, from the distance that they could engage targets at on the move, um, you know, they got the 25 millimeter cannons on the front of them, uh, the LAVs and machine guns mounted to them, 240s. Um, I think we were just probably a, a better fit for that front roll. And, you know, we had to take Highway 1 most of the way from um, Kuwait all the way up to, to Crit. Um, so uh, the shoot and move capabilities, I think, put us where we, where we were. Tell me what it was like experiencing that when you have General Mattis giving you that that speech at the beginning. I, you know, now looking back on it, it's so cool. In the beginning, you know, it, it definitely got us fired up, but, um, you know, the, the rumors of how awesome General Mattis were had just uh, started floating around. You know, I, I started hearing these stories of how he took over um, a fire watch for some PFC on Christmas Day um, to let him you know, kind of have his shift off and all, all these things, you know, that I, when he gave us the speech though, I didn't know that much about him. Um, he was just a general giving a speech. And uh, normally that's something I think you kind of roll your eyes and just sit through, but the speech was awesome. It got us all fired up. Um, and I think, you know, Marines in general just started, um, putting him up on a pedestal pretty fast, um, a well-deserved pedestal, you know, um, and General Mattis became uh, the guy we all looked up to. Anything from the speech that he gave you that day that you still kind of carry with you that, that you remember that uh, had an impact on you? Um, the, the line that became the, uh, the uh, slogan for 1st Marine Division is in there. Um, and I think it's, it's almost how the speech ended to, uh, remind the world that there's no better friend and no worse enemy than, than a U.S. Marine. Um, I, I love that because, you know, I carried that through, um, the entire time in Iraq and I, um, I didn't really think about that line in the speech. Um, uh, I don't even know if I remembered it, but it was so true to, to what Marines were, um, during the invasion. The Iraqi people um, and our brothers to our left and right, the no better friend and no worse enemy than us. Um, you know, we'll, we'll help you do anything um, and accomplish, you know, we'll, we'll help you get the lights back on. We'll, we'll help you fix your plumbing. We'll be playing soccer with your kids. We'll eat with your families. But when, uh, when the shit hits the fan, you know, there's, you will have no worse enemy. That's when the beast comes out, right? Right. 
you know, jerk the chains off those dogs and let them do their jobs. Mattis's speech obviously had a huge impact on Noah. He had been training his whole life to be a Marine, and now hearing from a legendary general, he was even more gung-ho to do his duty. But shortly after coming home, everything changed for him. Yep. Yeah, three days after we got home, um, we were coming from San Diego to Camp Pendleton, and uh, the Marine driving my truck fell asleep at the wheel right at the uh, at the gate at the uh, the Polgus gate, and we rolled down a hill um, about a dozen times. I think we rolled um, at eighty miles an hour, and in that um, accident, I broke my neck. I broke my uh, C four, five, six, and seven in my neck, and it left me paralyzed for the rest of my life. Uh, the injury was pretty severe. I mean, that was one of the injuries, but it was the one that keeps me um, in a wheelchair. And uh, how long ago was this? This was in two thousand three. Three. So yeah, it's been been a while. Sixteen years. Yeah. Tell me about what happened. I mean, you. Um... You're in the truck, it rolls, you woke up in the hospital, what was it, five days later? Yeah. In the hospital? Yeah, five days later, and immediately they tell you the bad news. I mean, the second you're able to open your eyes and comprehend and listen, I couldn't talk because I had a trach in the front of my throat, but I could hear everything. Um, and, you know, they, like I said, immediately let you know that you're paralyzed, and they start going through the list of injuries, and... Um, you know, kind of like what the hopes and expectations are. But for a while, it was pretty touch and go. You know, I, I think uh, they, they worked some miracles keeping me alive. Yeah, you, didn't you say um, at one point, I, I think uh, either you told me or I read that you had died for, uh, in the accident and were resuscitated. Is that true? Yeah, I, and I, I mean, I think that they had to resuscitate me quite a few times in that first week or two, um, whether it was because I wasn't able to breathe um, or, um, you know, I know that my lungs had collapsed. It, it, that was probably the initial um, going out is I, I can very vividly remember taking my last breaths, um, you know, and kind of like the panic that set in and then the last, the last um, probably 30 seconds or so becoming really peaceful and, and um, okay with it. And then uh, waking up, later in the hospital, just extremely grateful and, uh, but also a little freaked out. Uh, I think, uh, I've never seen that. Uh, <laughs> that's an understatement, Noah. Just looking down and seeing the amount of tubes and wires hooked up to me was, um, was a scary, um, image to, to wake up to. And then, and then you're told that you're paralyzed and, and, and what goes through your mind at that point? I mean, what's the, what, what's the reaction like? To be honest with you, I thought these guys don't know me. <laughs> There's, uh, I'm gonna end up running out of this hospital. Um, I know they wanted me to absorb what they were saying, but um, I wasn't thinking that way. And you know, I thought I would be back with my unit within, you know, like no time, um, and deploy with them again. Um, I think the the reality started setting in uh, a couple months in my my unit deployed again and a bunch of the guys came out to say bye to me. Um, it was the first time that I remember like really crying, um, and thinking that this was more permanent than I thought it was. 
in the beginning and that I wasn't going to be going back to my unit. Um, you know, that was, that was a, a hard pill to swallow. And it was your, your brothers came to see you, right? And they were leaving. Right. They were going off. You were still there. That's the realization at that point. Yeah, I was going to be stuck in a hospital probably throughout their whole next deployment. Um, how long were you in the hospital? Uh, I think it was just over six months. That's a, yeah, that's a bit of a time. And then after you're released, tell me what happens after you, you go home, I'm assuming, right? Yeah. Where, where, where do you end up? Parents or? Uh, yeah, there was uh, a great group of um, union workers that were local that saw my story in the paper and they had contacted my mom and asked her if she needed help um, getting, you know, like the home accessible and she was kind of panicked because she didn't know, uh, you know, it was a two-story house and, and the downstairs was really just the uh, kitchen and, and dining room area. And then the bedrooms were above it. So uh, she didn't know, you know, are we going to have to move the dining room, you know, put Noah in there or uh, what, what are we going to do? And um, they helped build an addition onto the house. Wow. and made it all handicap accessible they turned the garage into basically a little apartment and uh, an accessible one and built a spot for me to come home to and um, I had been with the girl that I was dating at the time for about seven and a half years and um, you know she had sent me ring sizers when I was in Iraq and told me that she was taking charge because I was taking too long and uh we were going to get married when I got home. And then uh, uh, obviously the accident and rehab postponed everything. And then she slowly started moving some things into my house. Uh, and there was really no rush uh, for us to, to, you know, like make that a permanent home or anything for the two of us. It was just, uh, oh, everything was new. And we were going to figure it out as we went. And, um, you know, shortly after that, she, um, uh, She'd been working at this little restaurant down, down the road, um, well, down the road about 15 minutes, and called me up and said, uh, like, hey, babe, I got to work late tonight. They, they need me to work an extra two hours. Uh, and I said, no, that's fine. I'm already hopping into bed right now. <laughs> I'll just see you when you get home. And uh, we said, I love you, and, and hung up. And I woke up in the morning, and she wasn't next to me. And my initial thought was, where the hell did she spend the night? And then the phone started ringing. Um, and all of a sudden I, I just, my heart sank into my stomach because it was the house phone instead of my cell phone. And, um, and I couldn't reach over and answer it. I just heard it ringing and ringing and ringing. And then I heard my mom's footsteps walk down the stairs and answer the, the phone in the kitchen. Heard silence for, uh, you know, I don't know, a few seconds. And then I heard the phone fall and hit the floor. And I heard my mom drop to her knees and start crying. And so I transferred out of my bed and I rolled out into the hallway and I looked up at her and I just kept like almost yelling, what, what, what's wrong or what happened? And she, it took her 10 minutes before she could get the words out that Maureen had passed away and she fell asleep on her way home to my house um, after work. And, um, and died in the accident. Now, tell me what happened to you after hearing this news. 
And this is how long after you've been home from the hospital? Uh, Weeks. Weeks. In a matter of just a few weeks, Noah had his purpose taken from him. The only thing he ever wanted to do was be a Marine, and now that was gone. And now the love of his life is taken in a tragic accident. I asked Noah what was going through his mind at that moment. Uh, I, my, my world um, was gone. Uh, felt like, you know, the, the series of events of losing all my brothers and not being able to deploy with them, not being able to look out for them or have their backs or, or them have mine. Um, combat, losing um, my ability to uh, move anything, basically, you know, from the, the chest down and um, my physical being that I had worked so hard for and then losing the, the love of my life. Um, I, I just felt like I had no more fight left in me or a desire to keep going. Um, you, it took away all of the parts that were uh, the most meaningful to me. And that was, that was it. Uh, losing her. I, I couldn't even, if somebody asked me how I was doing for the first two years after she passed, I couldn't even get my vocal cords to work. I couldn't even, you know, just mutter the, the two letters. Okay. You know, I, um, it was extremely hard for me and the depression set in, um, real hard, the, the drinking, the drugs, the, um, suicidal thoughts, um, just it, that was the constant from that point on. So for those two years from the, from when you heard the news to then it was a downward spiral. Yeah. But the, the spiral lasted longer than that. I mean, I started being able to talk and have, um, conversations after those first two years, but um, the depression and everything else was still extremely strong. And uh, no, I was going to say, in the suicidal thoughts, I mean, um, you were <clears throat> sleeping with a gun every night, weren't you? Yeah, and just, you know, I, I was almost angry with <laughs> that. I was almost angry that I lived at my parents. Um, because it kept me from pulling that trigger that I wanted to pull so bad. Um, but the thought of my mom walking into that, um, you know, was that thing every night that, and it, and it would literally make me angry. Um, and it made me angry with her. I wanted to find a way out of there because I didn't want to destroy her. Um, and you know, I don't know. I, I just battled with that, um, if I do this, I'm ruining somebody else. So I need to figure out a way to, to get somewhere else to do this. Um, or, or somehow make it look like an accident, um, which, you know, when I, when I'm talking with other people who are battling with the the same thing, I just try to, uh, really focus on the, if you can wake up another 90 days, if you can just, you know, like even just deal with the depression for another 90 days, um, I guarantee you that at some point along the way, you'll have enough, um, enough wake-ups to have uh, something, whether it was a sunny day or an experience or something, um, change your perspective a little bit and your trajectory. I'm not going to say that it's going to completely dissipate in a day, um, but if you make it through it, this will end up being a, a point in time that you're going to look back at and be glad that you never pulled the trigger.
Now, were you feeling that at that time, or you see, that's what your perspective is now looking back? This is now hindsight. At the time, I, I had no idea. I didn't know what the solution was. Um, but, you know, then at some point, uh, a friend of mine knew what, what I was going through. Um, he had actually, you know, like rolled into my house. He saw the rifle on my bed, um, just kind of asked a, a couple questions nonchalantly, and he gauged my um, my status real quick. And, um, you know, I tried to play it off like it was no big deal, but he, he knew the severity of it. Um, he talked me into going to uh, an adaptive sporting event, going skiing in Colorado um, that I never thought I would do. I, even when he said it, I was like, dude, I'm a quadriplegic. I'm not going skiing on a mountain. It doesn't even make sense. Have you ever, have you ever seen anybody do adaptive sports before? I had never seen any of that stuff. Um, you know, I don't, I didn't even know another person in a wheelchair in my town. Um, so I was pretty far removed from the adaptive sports community. And I also didn't think of myself as somebody in a wheelchair. Um, so I, what did you think of? That's interesting. I, what your perspective I, was. I don't know, but if anybody ever invited me to something where there'd be a bunch of people in wheelchairs, I was like, no, nah, that's not me. You know, I'm in my mind, I was still that Marine, you know? Um, and that this was, it was temporary. I mean, was there some part of you that still felt like you were going to be there definitely was. And I spent a lot of my time looking up, um, the, the most current research that was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, I got real into learning about stem cell research and, um, you know, what could come of that and some of the things that they were already curing. Um, so I thought that that was going to eventually happen. So I have a question for you because this is interesting to me. Was, were you looking up these things at the same time that you had the suicidal thoughts? Yeah. So there was some part of you that knew you really didn't want to pull the trigger. And well, I know you're saying, you know, part of it was your mom. And, and I know it's funny because, not funny, I shouldn't use that word. You're saying your mom, I, I know that feeling of you were doing this out of, you didn't want to do it in her house out of love for her. And then you had that resentment toward her because you couldn't do it because of her. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I got pretty brutal with her. Um, I was, yeah, I, I look back at the way I treated her during those times and I'm ashamed of it. Um, I, because I really, you know, I, I became mean to her almost to put up a wall, um, or have her maybe not be as upset when I did it, but you're right. I mean, there was, there was always like a, a hope, um, but my hope was, it was a false hope. It was, you know, like I would be better if I could be walking again. Um, you know, not, not really, um, focusing on the reality of the situation and just moving on, you know, um, almost brings you back to your boot camp experience where you were prepared physically, but not mentally. Right. It was almost that exact same situation. It was the physical versus the mental for you. Yeah, that's a cool comparison to make, I, and it's probably fairly accurate. Um, now, one thing that uh, Maria brought up, she was watching your videos and said you, when you were suicidal, you were describing the taste of the barrel of the gun. So you actually had the gun in your mouth at some point. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, uh, Marines always make jokes about CLP, uh, the the lubricant that you clean your rifles with, um, you know, because you, you, at some point, you know, you're cleaning your weapon, you're eating, uh, your MRE, 
you know, you, you've tasted it a million times. Um, but you know, there were so many nights that, um, that I was crying going, you know, when I was doing it, um, that I make, I made a comment about the, the barrel tasting salty, you know, basically from tears, um, and, and CLP. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's almost unbelievable to think with the state that I'm in now and how, um, my life has turned around and how excited the zest I have for life now compared to, um, the way I felt in those moments. Um, you know, I even look at combat and just think like, that was me. I, it, it's hard for me to even imagine that that was such a, a big piece of my life uh, for so long. So, yeah, I mean, that's, it's amazing too that, you know, uh, many people that I know that have had suicidal thoughts look back on that one snapshot in time and they look at where they are now and just it's unimaginable to, to see yourself as the same person you were when you had those thoughts. Yeah. And I, I find myself being so grateful for so many things now, even the, the smallest things. Um, it, it, you know, like literally just looking out and seeing a sunny day, uh, that's, that's it. You know, that's what it's all about. It's going to be a good day. You know, um, the, the fact that I get to drink coffee in the morning, um, and get ready to go to a job that I absolutely love. Um, you know, I'm surrounded by, you know, in the line of work that I, I do, um, I'm, I'm helping other injured veterans every day. And which means I'm surrounded by somebody who is going through a part of their journey, whether it was, you know, they're immediately, um, coming out of their injury or they've, um, they figured out all the keys to success and they're passing it on to other people, you know, in a mentor role. Um, I just, I'm surrounded by awesome people, um, going through a transition that is, um, so empowering to watch. With such a dramatic change in his life and in his outlook, I wanted to know more about that first ski trip and about the buddy who had encouraged him to go. I wanted to know if he was in a wheelchair himself. Yeah, but he's also a paraplegic and I'm a quadriplegic. So I thought the difference for me, you know, for those that don't know the, the real difference between the two. Paraplegics are um, usually from the, the midsection or waist down. Um, they broke their back somewhere and a quadriplegic broke their neck and are either neck down or, or usually around the nipple line down. Um, so, uh, for instance, I can't use my hands um and have zero hand function where the guy that is telling me to do this has full hand function uh, you know even though i saw a picture of people skiing and they're holding onto these outriggers with their hands and that's how they control themselves and i was thinking to myself well, i can't even hold on to the outriggers you know i don't know how how i'm going to do this um but i figured out duct tape has another use <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly duct tape that's a fixes everything yeah oh, yep. duct tape fixes everything so how was this first experience going down for you um it was a game changer i i got out to aspen snowmass um i got 
um, seated in this uh, bi-ski, what it's called, the one that I use. And I got these two instructors who were going to be helping me through the week. And um, we went up the, the first lift to the halfway point. And they asked me if I wanted to go all the way to the top. We'd have to get on this other lift right next to it and take it to the top. So <laughs> I'm already committed. We may as well go to the top. And, uh, you know, there's only one way to get down. You can't walk me down from here. And uh, so we went all the way to the top. And I got off the lift and I looking out, uh, you know, you, you feel from that vantage point that you could see planet Earth, you know. Um, you just see forever up there. And it was beautiful. Um, I was excited to be where I was at. And, um, and then something happened, you know, like I realized in a minute here, I'm going to have to go down this monster and, um, that fear and adrenaline started kicking in and, um, you know, the, uh, the fear of the unknown. Um, and if I'm going to survive this and I felt alive again, you know, I felt, um, I felt those things that, um, the, the, you know, like that competitiveness you feel in sports with yourself. Um, the, uh, the, like I said, the fear, the adrenaline, um, and a challenge, um, a new goal, it, all these things that were non-existent in my life, you know, from, uh, the time that I was hurt until then, you know, about six years later or so. And uh, it gave me a new lease on life. You know, I went down the mountain, I survived, I went back up again, and I went back up again, you know, and then I, um, I was at an event with a lot of other injured veterans. And I heard stories that, um, you know, put mine to shame. And I'm listening to these other guys tell their stories. And I'm just thinking, all right, you know, they got to figure it out that they, they um, have adapted and overcome They're they're living a good life. And um, that potential is there for me, too. And, um, you know, now along the way, I've gotten to meet a thousand guys and girls that have been through um, some of the most. Um, some of the most incredible things I've ever heard. Um, you know, I, I feel like I could take up hours of your time sharing some of these people's stories, but they really, you know, like I, I draw on them um, all the time. I, if I'm struggling with something, if I, if I don't want to um, go on a push around the lake at night, if I am, um, you know, for a moment feeling sorry for myself for any reason, um, I use all of them and, and for different reasons. Um, and they, they help me get through everything. So they become inspiration to you. Like these are the people who get you moving. The cast of characters I surround myself with definitely inspire me on a daily basis. Give me, give me an example of someone who really inspires you. Uh, well, yesterday I went to the airport and picked up my buddy, Tim Vixay. Um, he is uh, a quadriplegic. He's a higher level quadriplegic than me meaning he broke his neck a little higher than me, um, which means he has less function than me. And, um, you know, that even just a couple muscle groups less um, make life a lot harder. You know, for instance, I preserved a little bit of my, I have tricep on my left side. Um, and 
Tim doesn't have any tricep, but yet he uh, can transfer himself in and out of um, vehicles, in and out of bed, um, and he lives independently. Um, I've watched him cook meals he on his own, um, something that I never do. Um, I watched well he did he did a marathon in his rugby chair um, 26.2 miles in a wheelchair um, and we're talking about a guy who has less function than me um, so and I know it's going to sound strange people thinking 26.2 miles in a wheelchair is not a big deal but it is a massive deal a massive deal. in that chair for 26 yeah. miles yeah um, it you know I I push four and a half miles around my lake every other day and it is brutal. Um, it is uh, an extremely hard um, thing to do. And, you know, it takes me almost an hour. So to think of having less function than I have and pushing a chair 26.2 miles, um, it, you know, that's six times what, what I push. Um, and he just inspires the hell out of me. Um, and I love having him around. He teaches me so much about independence. Um, he gives me, you know, new perspectives on, on all sorts of things. He teaches me the, the game of wheelchair rugby. He's a guru in that sport. Um, so that's a really good example because I just picked him up at the airport. And he's one of those guys that I get to, you know, draw on all the time. And, you know, it's just such an amazing story. And it, and it is inspirational i mean there's really no other word for it what i'm feeling now is for you personally you come through you know the tragedies you come through your injuries you come through the mental break and you know the suicidal thoughts to the top of a mountain like literally to the top of a mountain yeah and and can see more clearly i mean i'm just getting the visual of that and then it becomes a life purpose for you, right? I mean, this then becomes your purpose, getting other injured veterans into adaptive sports. So tell me how uh, Oscar Mike got started. Well, um, you know, I started hearing all these guys' stories. I started asking a lot of questions. Um, you know, and one of the first things, because I was so excited, I went immediately after that, um, that event, um, I signed up for the National Veteran Wheelchair Games, which is a, a large competition that's held annually, uh, and over 600 um, veterans in wheelchairs all um, compete against each other in a, a bunch of different sports. And um, so between that event um, and then the wheelchair games, and then uh, right after that, I went skydiving. And then I enrolled in uh, college again. And, you know, like this is all packed into three months, you know. And so you could just, oh, no the transition was like, so fast. It was like that, right? You just went, I'm doing this. It was immediate. And everybody said the same thing when they got involved or went to an adaptive sport that their life had changed. And so I was just like, all right, well, am I going to see you at this? Am I going to see you at this? Uh, you know, I, I was hooked. And then you start hearing everybody say, well, you know, like, I would love to, but I can't afford to do that. You know, I can't afford to get to this. And I realized, you know, pretty quickly that money is a barrier of entry to life changing um, opportunities. 
And I just, you know, like, because I wanted to do that same thing I did as a kid and in high school, build this group of uh, friends around me to, that are going through the same thing that I'm going through, um, you know, and, and uh, that unit family vibe um, that I crave all the time. Uh, I thought we'll, we'll just marry the two together. We're, we're going to remove those barriers, hopefully shorten the, the time um, from injury to um, getting involved in adaptive sports and, uh, and remove the barrier of entry and then provide you with a, a group of um, not only friends and, and what I'll call a family, but also the knowledge that comes along with how these people have um, adapted and overcome so many different things. And, you know, it's interesting because you talk about the barrier to entry on it. And I, don't, I think what, you know, I didn't realize and what I'm looking at more and more of, it's not just entry fees, but it's getting there, it's travel. Typically, I would think a lot of these adaptive athletes have, you know, um, at least one other person who comes with them right. to facilitate and all the other things. So it, it becomes expensive quickly. Oh, yeah. I mean, just going to one event could end up costing thousands of dollars, you know, especially if you have to bring with uh, somebody to give you a hand with some things or the traveling part of it, uh, if, you know, or to get ready, you know, in the mornings, whatever it is, um, the equipment that's involved. Um, yeah, that's two people leaving for an event that aren't working. If the event is a week long, you know, that's um, you're talking about loss of income, too, on top of it. So there, there's a lot that goes into it that people probably don't see on the outside. Yeah, and um, so you saw this, and obviously you saw the, the benefit to you instantly when you got involved in it. And so how did Oscar Mike start? What was, the, what was step one? I mean, because it's, it's grown to an impressive organization, but there was that first step going in. How did that kind of get going? Well, when we were talking um, in the lobby of a hotel at the National Veteran Wheelchair Games, and I was just, you know, trying to extract as much information as I could from the people while I had them there, uh, these guys that would become my brothers, um, I wanted to know um, what events I would see them at next, when we could link up next, um, and, you know, that's when we very quickly identified that if this is so expensive, this would be hard for us to do regularly. Um, but going to an event once or twice a year isn't enough to, to keep your mind and your body going. You know, you have to have more touch points than that. Um, and you got to get, you got to get the band together more often, you know, um, if you want to be successful. So, um, we just, you know, we started talking about how we should start a nonprofit and really just focus on adaptive sports and have it be a by us for us organization. I think that that's, you know, the biggest differ differentiator between Oscar Mike and the rest is it's just a bunch of disabled guys and girls doing the best for their brothers and sisters. You know what I mean? It's uh, they all have input on everything that we do. Um, we take the suggestions of, of everybody who has one, um, on how to either improve a program or to add a program, uh, you know, where the, the need is or the want is. Um, but in that, in that, uh, hotel lobby, we just, we made a few decisions and it was, um, none of us really wanted to go ask people for a handout. Um, so 
let's let's figure out a creative way to raise money um which we also found out immediately that it would take us up to two years to get 501c3 status so we uh we filed for an llc and we started selling t-shirts we didn't have to ask people for money um it was a good way to start marketing the cause and the mission and uh, educating people on what on the move meant um so we started the apparel company and we started the nonprofit and um in my parents two-car garage um in, in the hotel lobby there three guys raised their hand you know i was the first one to say like hey i got a two-car garage we can use and uh, you know if does anybody want to join me and then three other guys raised their hands and said hey we can you know probably move out there for about six months and uh, help you get this thing rolling and i said perfect let's do this and um you know we the name came immediately oscar mike because it meant on the move and we had just used it a bunch in the invasion um it was something that the un forces were using on the radios um quite often um and then you know when you watch uh, football on sundays you hear on the move a million times you know if you watch the games so it was just a cool you know it was a cool way for us to um, tie sports and uh, the military together and and get more people involved in adaptive sports hopefully change some lives so yeah i mean that's just fantastic i mean the fact that you guys all got together and it was i don't want to say easy but there was a lot of flow there like people were volunteering you knew where to put it you got the first things and you started selling just a couple of shirts i shouldn't say a couple of shirts a couple of designs for sure right and it just grew from there yeah i mean that yeah, we were very naive though. It, you know, you think you build this website, you create the shirts, and then people start buying them. Um, especially because we're the only ones doing it the entire process in America. So we have American made on top of it, helping injured veterans, you know, like all this stuff. We're like, if you build it, they will come. But we couldn't have been more wrong. Um, raising money and selling t shirts is, is extremely hard. And, um, you know, none of us had, um, business experience we were all freshly out of the military or you know that was the last um, employment that we had and uh, we had to learn a lot um, i've learned a lot along the way and you really uh, running a business and running a nonprofit is not as easy as um, i thought it would be when i raised my hand and the other guys raised their hand in, in the hotel but we've learned so much and had so much fun doing it i mean that first year we were probably only able to help like five people get to an adaptive sport. We weren't raising any money. Um, and you can only ask your friends and family, you know, to buy so many shirts and to, to donate so much money. So we, you know, we had to learn what it was like to become a real business and uh, a real nonprofit. And um, yeah, it's been a heck of a learning experience. You know, a lot of guys give up during that period, you know, that's that, um, when it, when it does get difficult, you know, there's that, that was always that initial enthusiasm. Hey, we're going to do this. It's going to be awesome. This is going to be great. You push out and then you hit that challenge and resistance. So what kept you guys going besides, you know, obviously the purpose is that, is that really what was keeping you on the mission? The, the, the purpose, the fact that we were going to be doing it regardless, you know, we have to figure out a way to raise money for ourselves to get to adaptive sports regardless. So, you know, like, can we help one person 
or are we going to help a thousand people in a year? I don't know, but let's just, you know, keep plugging along. The other thing, a lot of us, we were, we were also very fortunate to have, um, you know, VA disability because we didn't have to, you know, to this day, I've still never drawn a paycheck. I've never taken a dollar from either entity because I have that. Um, and, you know, I always feel bad for people that are starting a business and hit that wall of, you know, oh my God, I don't even know how I'm going to feed myself today. Um, you know, where I always, I was, I always had that security of, I was going to be able to eat and survive another day, um, no matter what happened. Um, but there was no stopping it. You know, we were, we're gonna, even if we didn't have a dollar in the account, you know, and the, and the lights weren't going to work, we couldn't stop what we were doing because our own lives depended on getting to these events. Sure. And it was important for you to get your brothers and sisters to those events too. You said you did five people the first year. You were able it, to was a, it was an embarrassingly low number. Yeah. And That's not embarrassing low in any way. That's five more than would have gone before. True. And then, you know, it, and that's always the way I had to look at it in the beginning is, you know, I wanted to be helping a, a million people. And so five million or five people, you know, it's like, man, we got to do more. We got to do more. We got to do more. And I don't know if I'll ever be content with the numbers that we're hitting because there are always more people that um, need it and could use it. Um, but um, we, I think, have doubled um, the amount every year, um, of people we were able to help. And, um, you know, I hope to just continue that trend because, you know, even if we could help a thousand in a year this year, um, or, or offer that many sporting opportunities in a year, um, you know, that's probably a drop in the bucket compared to the full number. I was, I was, um, looking at the, the VA stats and there are, um, over 900,000 people that have over a 70% disability rating. That's incredible. These are veterans. Yeah. That are, that have been injured, you know, in service. Yep. 900,000. Yep. It's over that. It's all, it's just about a million. Wow. Wow. Well, you'll get there. I, I know you'll get there, man. I mean, that's, what does it cost you? Let's, let's do the math quick. What's, what is, what is the average cost to get somebody to an adaptive sporting event? Right now, if you, uh, at the level that we're at with the amount of employees that we have, because we only have two paid employees um, working for the foundation, it's costing us with overhead and, and everything involved about $2,500 a person. I think over time or with scale, that becomes a lot less. Um, but right now with the, the scale that we're at, um, it's about $2,500 a person. Right, yeah, so we're talking, you know, $2.5 billion a year you would need to raise to get all 900,000 of them, or all million of them, I mean, to an event. Right. Good goal. Um, I'm, set, I'm setting that goal right now. No, I'm going to help. I'm going to buy two more shirts when we get off. Awesome. <laughs> and I'm going to help you move forward. Um, what is, you know, we, we talk about, um, well, let, let me get to this because I think this is important. You know how you felt before you got involved in adaptive sports. And, you know, you mentioned the first year it was like five people and you thought that was an embarrassingly low number. But 
the fact that, that getting involved in these sports basically saved your life, right? Saved you from actually pulling that trigger. Um, think about the lives that have been saved just by doing what you're doing. Yeah. When we do our uh, weekly clinics and we, we uh, fill the Oscar Mike compound up with people that uh, might be experiencing um, adaptive sports for the first time or being around other people that are um, going through the same kind of thing that they're going through. And the, at the end of it all, when we do our, our big family dinner each week, um, to hear like, uh, the, the tone in their voice change to see the tears of, of joy and pride um, and everything that they just experienced. Um, I know that people are having that same breakthrough that I had and it's, it's incredible. I, there's no way that I could articulate um, what, what that feels like to, to see that happen. Powerful what can be accomplished by a man on purpose by a man living his purpose and even more powerful when others feel the pull to get involved. Now, Noah told me he had been approached by companies eager to help Oscar Mike by donating time, resources, equipment, money. I asked him about that, about these big companies stepping up to help injured veterans. I have a board next to me that has a list of all of them that have done something, whether it was time and energy, whether it was um, supplying us with a resource or donated financially. And it's uh, the list has 118 companies on it right now. You're kidding me. 118. That is incredibly impressive. What I mean, what categories are they in? I mean, is it they're not all sports related, I would assume. Oh, no, no, not at all. I mean, as I look over, I mean, Spartan Race is a big one of ours. Um, an obstacle course race series. Um, but then you got um, the tech companies, you know, Google, Facebook, um, LinkedIn, uh, Amazon. Uh, then we got private foundations, uh, car manufacturers like Ford has been a good partner of ours. I'm literally looking over at the whiteboard on the wall and just they're in every, every sector. Um, wow. There's, there's a, a want and a need to support, you know, the kind of thing that we're doing. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've never really been good at is asking for, for something, but to know uh, that I have not approached a single one of these companies and they've all just extended a hand and said, you know, like, how can we get involved? Um, and we're growing these partnerships year after year. Um, it's, you know, they, they've all, most of them have all become like part of the family. Yeah, that was my next question was, did you approach them or they approach you? And I, and I think that's just absolutely amazing and inspiring that these, these organizations, I mean, these are, you know, Fortune 10 companies are coming to you right. and going to be involved in what you've built. How does that feel when, um, you know, Ford comes to you and says, what can we do to help? That I have no idea. I like it when that happens, it's just, you know, it's kind of like that pinch me. I don't even know how this just happened. Um, somebody made a connection somewhere. And next thing you know, you know, like you're, you're going to Detroit and going to, to meetings at Ford. Uh, you know, I just got back from Seattle and uh, spent two days in meetings with uh, Amazon. And, 
you know, like these, these places are unbelievable. I go into Facebook and Google and uh, I just, I never thought in a million years um, that I'd be um, in these buildings, having meetings with these people and having them be um, so interested in, you know, like not just getting involved, but giving you a freaking hug and saying, we're, we're in this, like, we, we love this. We love being around you guys. Um, and a lot of them even will, will join us at events, you know, though, whether they're at one of our wheelchair rugby matches or helping us put together, uh, the, um, the national championships for wheelchair rugby, or they're at the compound visiting, um, or they're at a Spartan race, you know, going through the, the suck with everybody. I mean, they, they're, it's cool. It's, it's been a great experience. So, I mean, I want to, that just blows me away. You know what I mean? That these big companies are, are that, um, they have that sense of community, right? That sense of duty themselves to, to do this yeah. involved, you know, it's just unbelievable. You know, it brings me to some of the stuff I always ask at, at, towards the end of the interview. And one is, you know, we have our, our sacred seven core values that, that we put out and it's, you know, um, courage, honesty, integrity, commitment, duty, honor, love. When I, when I feel into those seven, it seems like Oscar Mike pretty much hits all of them. And you know, what, what kind of, which of them hit you the most? Oh man. I, every one of those core values are, um, so important to what we do. I mean, you could, you could dissect each one of them and say, why that one is the most important, I feel like. Um, but at the end of the day, love is it, you know, it, it really is every single time. Um, and I, the love I have for the people that I'm surrounded by, um, the love I have for watching them overcome um, the things that they have to overcome, uh, their families, um, you know, I just, I just traveled to a wheelchair rugby event with uh, my buddy Caleb, who's on the team, and his wife Brittany, and their two little girls, um, you know, in an airport with four with four rugby chairs, the child seats, the luggage, and I mean the the struggle that they go through, and the love that I have for them, and seeing their family, and that their family gets to be a part of these events, um, you know, I that's gotta be it. I mean, I, I absolutely love being around all these people. Yeah. I can feel that too, because you know, we, we came up with the seven or put the seven together. Love was at the end because it was the ultimate, right. And you couldn't have that without any of the other stuff. And you know, the courage, um, that you've been, you know, that you've shown honesty and integrity to want to do what you're doing, um, and give back, the commitment, obviously, we talked about that before, um, you know, pushing through, not, not knowing how to run a foundation or a business and, and still pushing through um, the duty, obviously, and um, honor and, and all the way to love. I mean, it's just you can feel it. And I think that's why the organization has been as successful as it is, is you really encompass all of those in what you do. Yeah. And I'm, I'm lucky to be able to feel the love that I, that I get to feel with this. And then when you were a Marine and going through some of this, you know, boot camp and, 
and the training and then into combat, did you feel like love would be the ultimate answer? It, it was, I mean, what, how do you, how do you get through any of that? You know, it's the guys to your left and right. It's yeah. the love that you have for them. It's the, you know, wanting to make sure that they make it home to their families and their girlfriends. And, you know, it's, um, that, that's what gets you through everything. I'm going to wrap up with this. Um, and I mean, look, I mean, it's almost obvious, but I want to hear it from you in that. What is the biggest, your biggest life lesson for those listening? The biggest lesson you've taken away through your life? That no matter what, where you're at in life, no matter how bad something can be, you can get through it and anything is possible. I mean, literally anything. I, you can't uh, present something that I, I, I could say, no, that's not possible. You, you can't do that. Um, you could, um, you just have to, you have to make it a priority. Um, and, um, you know, I, I didn't know if I was going to make it through anything that I made it through, but I did. Um, and I would just hope that I could impart that on anybody is that, if I'm just a normal guy um, that did a bunch of normal things, signed my, you know, like my life away on the dotted line, uh, grew up in the Midwest. I, you know, didn't come from money. Didn't, uh, I don't have a background in business or, um, you know, or in anything. And I pulled it all off. And um, if I can do it, you can do it. As I said, guys, this is a true inspiration, a true warrior here. Noah proves that we can accomplish anything, no matter the obstacles or adversity. And what I really love about Noah and his story, about his inspiring hero's journey, is how dramatically different the change in his life was when he went from being a victim versus when he tapped into his warrior and had purpose. Such an important lesson there. No victims, no victimhood. How important it is to drop that shit, to drop that label we place on ourselves. That only serves to keep us down and create that spiral of despair and blame. But by dropping that, just getting on purpose and driving forward is what creates the incredible victories in our lives. That's what drove Noah to create this incredible foundation that is now changing the lives of so many paralyzed veterans and putting them on the path to new victories in their lives. I brought the men of the round table together for this because I wanted to get their insights and their takeaways from Noah's incredible story. Joining me for this session are Frank, John, Tom, and Alex. And Frank is going to lead us off. The biggest thing that, that hit me listening to it was just, just the phrase, keep moving forward, and how this guy just embodies that to the, the millionth degree. When you kind of look at things that you may consider challenges in your life or things you may consider a struggle, when you hear his story and his ability to still, still move forward, climb out of that and, and make something of himself, it was just, uh, just truly inspiring. Now here's John. For me, Eric, it was the mental versus physical separation. We think of men sometimes like, oh, it's a, we got to be tough physically, but that only gets you so far. And there's that component of the physical, which Gareth talked about in the, the last episode, but there's also that, that mental one. And that 
as I listened to this, I just felt, wow, this mental aspect is like 95% of what it means to not only be a man, but just be alive. It's about that mental aspect. You can have all this physical stuff, but it's everything that's running in your head. It's everything that's going on. And, and I couldn't imagine what he went through. And also it just perspective. We talked about that. You said that just a few minutes ago, perspective. You know, I have a problem. I think it's a big deal. And then I listened to you interview Noah and uh, my perspective just totally changed. Here's Tom's takeaway. I think he summed up the episode really well at the end when you asked the takeaway. And it was that anything is possible. You just need to make it a priority. And, and I think that so often people, the cliche of anything is possible, you kind of go through that. But to, to really focus on the fact that he had to work on it, you know, anything's possible. But again, you know, what he did without any background in business or marketing, it was that that was the priority of life. He found what his mission and purpose was, and then he went all in to achieve it. And Alex wraps it up. It's such a separation, you know what I mean, of who you were and then who you are. Everything he was speaking was similar what General Mattis has been really pushing here recently, process it, find a purpose, get on with things. You know what I mean? You got life to continue and you've got this gift of life to continue and live it every day, whatever the details look like. I want to thank the men of the round table for their insights and their input and their takeaways. And I think it really shows how focusing on the wins rather than on the losses can truly save your life and the lives of others. And again, What Noah demonstrates is how we can truly overcome any obstacles, anything in our way. And when we drop the victim label, we can actually get on purpose and get to creating incredible victories for ourselves and for others. So now I want to know what you got out of Noah's story. Are you now more comfortable facing a truly incredible obstacle, something you thought you could never get past? Um, Are you looking to take those on now to conquer those and get more? I want you to let me know. Uh, You can find me on Facebook. Just ask to join the private Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes Facebook group that we have there. Or head over to the website, uh, wlkhpodcast.com. Click there. Leave a comment. I want to know if you're getting inspiration from this. If you're looking to grow more as a person, as a man, and do more create more, overcome more in your own life. So remember, as you do this, rate us, leave a review and comment on this episode. But most importantly, make sure to share this show with men you know will get value from it. I'm sure there's at least two or three men you can think of right now whose lives will be changed for the better just by hearing this episode. So please pass it on. And I want to thank Noah Courier for joining me today for being real and honest and telling us the story of his journey to modern manhood. And I want to thank you for listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes today. I'm Eric Rogel, and I'm honored to be with you to be your brother on your hero's journey. I'll talk to you next week. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world.
Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food. So come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app.